This episode of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please support us on Patreon over at patreon.com geeks or via PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com crowdfunding. And so I want to give a special thank you to Cheryl McCutcheon, who just signed up this week to support us on Patreon. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. All right, so now let's get to our show. Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 532 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. I'm David Barr Kirtley, author of the book Save Me Please and Other Stories, which is available now on Amazon.com. We had a great conversation about the book back in episode 500, so definitely check that out if you missed it. And today's guest is Michael Livingston. He's the author of fantasy novels such as The Shards of Heaven and Seaborn, and history books such as Never Greater Slaughter and Crazy, Battle of Five Kings. He also appeared on the Discovery Channel show Contact, where he served as part of a team investigating UFO sightings. And in this interview, we'll be discussing his new book, Origins of the Wheel of Time, the legends and mythologies that inspired Robert Jordan. And now here's our interview with Michael Livingston. All right, so we're here with Michael Livingston. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. I'm really happy to be here. Okay, and so your new book is called Origins of the Wheel of Time. So how'd this book come about? Yeah, it's a pretty fun fun book to have worked on. Uh, I, I keep saying like, like a dream come true, only I never would have dreamed it would have happened. <laughs> this is a look behind the best-selling series Wheel of Time and an ag- examination of how did Robert Jordan, the author, uh, build this story. You know, it sold millions and millions of copies. What are the legends he used, the mythologies, um, all the stuff that he used from notes. I uh, had full access to everything uh, that he had, and uh, it was great. Yeah, so I'll just explain. So the first what, I don't know, the first third or half of the book or so is this capsule biography of Robert Jordan, just kind of laying yeah. out his life and kind of what his uh, life experiences were that, that influenced his writing. And then the second part is this sort of uh, dictionary format where it's all these names and, you know, from the Wheel of Time books, all these character names and place names and terms and stuff like that with a, um, you know, an explanation of what real life uh, myths and legends and characters and, and things he drew on. Um, and so how did you get the idea for that sort of format? So, you know, the, the, the idea for the format, uh, was kind of organic, right? I mean, I knew, uh, the material that I had going in, right. I knew that I was going to be dealing with, um, a lot of how he, he, uh, he, he constructed this and that implied a certain level of, of talking through his biography, right? Like, who is this guy? Uh, where did he come from? How did that influence it as well? I, I knew he was a v- Vietnam vet. Um, and I knew that was part of the books. So I wanted to tell that story. And, and then I also knew I wanted to show people, um, you know, show readers instances of, of him doing this, right. Instances of him, um, you know, constructing a character, constructing an event or something like that. So, so yeah, the back half of the book is full of, uh, this kind of glossary of all these little, you know, tidbits, right. You know, that, that this, this battle name and this battle was derived from, from this thing in history. 
So I just knew like I have all this strand of material. What way can I organize this that is going to take readers on an, an intelligible, coherent journey so that they, they get the kind of full experience of, of, uh, of what he had done? You say in the acknowledgments that your agent, Paul Stevens, kind of had the initial idea? Yeah, yeah. He, his idea was, uh, you know, in my, in my current day job, as it were, I'm a medieval military historian. And so I write books on, on battles and I reconstruct uh, ancient and medieval uh, engagements, I find them and reconstruct them. And, and he was like, look, I, you know, you do that. You've given lots of talks about Robert Jordan. I mean, like, how about if you just do both, like do a book on the, the battles <laughs> of the wheel of time. Right. And, and I was like, well, that, I mean, that would be really would be cool. Uh, but also what if I kind of took a bigger picture and, and tried to not just do, you know, the military engagements within the wheel of time, but the entirety of the wheel of time, like, you know, at least give a snapshot of what that might look like. So yeah, he came up with that idea. Um, I sort of said, well, in, instead let's do this. And then we pitched it to the estate to, um, uh, to, to Jordan's widow and former editor, Harriet. And, uh, she wrote back, <laughs> it was when, like, I sent the email expecting no, right? No, you can't do this. And instead I got this email back that was like, I think it's a great idea. You're the only, you're the only person who can do it. And I've already talked to the head of tour books. <laughs> like they're, they're expecting it, you know, like it went from like zero to a hundred, like really quick. And, and yeah, at that point, everybody was engaged in the thing. So, uh, it was really wild to have that experience of full, you know, kind of authorized. I can look at anything I want. I can talk to anybody I want. And that there was such a warm, welcoming openness from everybody on, on, uh, on that side. And at tour, um, you know, like the copy editor that copy edited the wheel of time books was my copy editor. Like, we did everything we could to make it so that everybody who who would know about it had touched it, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Well, I was kind of curious. I mean, how much of – because you mentioned in the book that there are all these Wheel of Time fan sites and, and stuff. Like how much of the material in this book is, was sort of crowdsourced from the community and how much of it was you kind of going through Jordan's notes and going through the books and stuff and coming up well, with uh, things yourself? Yeah. No, it's a great question. I, you know – the notes, the notes were the number one thing. Um, the, the crowd, the crowdsourcing, I'll tell you the biggest thing that was crowdsourcing to me was there, there are some wonderful websites. There's multiple that have done this. Uh, but one in particular, that's the one I kind of cited most is a, a website called Theoryland that they, uh, you know, digitized and built into a searchable database, like every interview that Robert Jordan had ever given. Uh, any, any answer that he'd given at a, uh, at a convention, right. Or a book signing, like, like anything that they could get from him, they had put together this wonderful searchable database. So, you know, when I started working on the book, I, I was, you know, sitting here at, uh, at the desk, like, you know, with all these stacks, right. Trying to kind of like sort things through, you know, where did I, where did I read that? <laughs> and then, and then I'm like, what, you know, what am, what am I doing? You know, they've, they've already built the fans have already built this amazing resource. And it, you know, the click of a button, there's every time he referenced, you know, uh, this particular thing I'm looking at. So really cool to have that kind of, um, you know, that kind of thing in hand that wouldn't have been possible, right? You know, 30 years ago or whatever, somebody doing a book like this. 
Well, you mentioned uh, your desk. So why don't you tell that story? Because that's kind of an interesting story. <laughs> yeah, I can't believe it. So I'm, I'm sitting at it right now. I, I am signing this contract um, and completely unrelated. I work at the Citadel, which which was his alma mater. This is where he went to school. And it actually bears in the books in several different ways. And uh, I'm sitting here and I get an email and they say, well, so Harriet donated his writing desk to the school and and we need to put it somewhere. Um, she said she wants it actually to be used. Do you, do you want it in your office? <laughs> and, uh, and yeah, of course, writing, <laughs> getting ready to start writing this book. And I was like, yeah, oh, okay. So, so yeah, I mean, I'm sitting at Robert Jordan's desk uh, in his chair. Um, I have one of the swords from his armory uh, to my right, a saber tooth tiger skull that the estate gave me that features in the book to my left and uh, signed copies of all his books in front of me. And the white tower is out the window to my <laughs> right. So it's a little bit uh, intimidating at times, but it also, uh, I, I don't know if it was reassuring or something working on these books to have all that there, but it was certainly, you know, it was noticeable, you know, I'll say. I saw, I think on Twitter that I saw you, uh, a fan, it looked like a, a Robert Jordan fan had come in and had his picture taken sitting at that chair. Is that something that happens uh, very often? So it did happen when the book came out, there was here in Charleston, we had a book signing and uh, it was only, you know, real official book signing we did. And, and a group of people came from, I mean, literally of the world, we had somebody from England flew in for the book signing and I gave, I gave a little lecture. Uh, here at here at the school, and I was like, "Yeah, man, y'all came from all of you guys. Want to come see the desk?" <laughs> <laughs> and and they said, "Yeah, yeah, they really would love to do that." So, uh, yeah, so they all came up. There was it must have been like twenty people. Ultimately, were were kind of like crowding the hallway, uh, trying to get pictures of it. And yeah, they're like, "Can we sit at the desk?" <laughs> yeah, yeah, you can sit at the desk. I do it every day. So uh, pretty. I think it, yeah, I think it meant a lot to them, and it obviously meant a lot to me that they were there. Right. That is, that is, uh, you know, an incredible gesture. And, um, so I mean, I was, I was happy to do it, but, uh, but yeah, it's not, I will say it's not an everyday occurrence as a professor that you have people lining in the hallway to take pictures of your office. Uh, <laughs> it's a little bit, a little bit not normal and a little, a little bit like I need to keep my office cleaner than other people. I think, uh, it's like a museum now. <laughs> So, so his uh, his methodology, as I sort of got it from your book, is, is sort of basically he took all these. I mean, you say he had fourteen thousand books in his library or something, but he, he drew on all these myths and legends. Um, I think you say that the big three were, or these the big three books were the White Goddess by Robert Graves, Le Mort d'Arthur by Thomas Mallory, and the Lord of the Rings by J.R.R. Tolkien. Mm-hmm. And but he but he took all these sort of a lot of his favorite things from around you know the history of uh military you know from military history and uh fairy tales and all this kind of stuff and took all these names and kind of um uh distorted them or you know camouflaged them somehow and put them in the book and and used that as this inspiration to build out this whole world kind of under the assumption that um you know the wheel of time this the 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 chronology is cyclical and and these characters and events and motifs will all repeat and become distorted by the passage of time and stuff. And so kind of anything that was cool could all kind of find a home in this universe that he was building. Yeah. Is that a, is that a fairly, a pretty, 
Yeah. That's a pretty good way of putting it. Yeah. I mean, it, it is, you know, the past is the future and the future is the past, right? So, so he could have, um, depending on how you want to look at it, you could say King Arthur is in uh, the Wheel of Time, or you could say that, like, you know, that the Wheel of Time is like in King Arthur, right? You know, <laughs> like, like the stories kind of go around on each other. So, so when he's constructing it, yeah, he could bring together all of this mythic material, all this legendary material. And he could also have references to the space race. Um, you know, he could put John Glenn in it as some kind of distantly hazily remembered thing uh, that, you know, you kind of squint at and you're like, Oh, I think he's talking about John Glenn there. Like, Oh, okay. Uh, because in, in the, in the current turning of the wheel as, as, as it's called uh, that the story is taking place in, you know, that's in their distant past. And so, um, you know, he described it sometimes as like a, the game of telephone, right? You know, you, you keep kind of whispering from one ear to another, what do you get at the end? Well, it's going to be kind of garbled. And, and he's like, well, history is the same thing, which, which it is right. You know, history does function this way and mythology functions this way. And so he, he simply kind of encoded that, uh, within these, within this massive story, yeah. I mean, you mentioned John Glenn there. I thought that was an interesting observation in the book that there's a character called Glenn who went to space. And yeah. so people are like, oh, was that John Glenn? Is that, you know, is that a reference to John Glenn? Is it a reference maybe to Neil Armstrong? Because, you know, Glenn is kind of Neil backwards. Right. And you you say that he didn't want it to be just sort of like a code. You know, you want it to be some plausible distortion. You know, you, know, you could get to Glenn from Glenn. You wouldn't get to Neil from you wouldn't get right. to learn from Neil. I thought that was right. an interesting insight into his um, thought process. Yeah, yeah, and then this was this was something that that he was very serious about, right? You know, you couldn't in the game of telephone, you couldn't you couldn't go the one way, right? You wouldn't reverse the order or something, but you could, yeah, drop a G, that could happen, right? And somebody mishears, and then you, you get to Len. Um, and and in that case, I mean, we know like for absolute certainty that uh, uh, it was John Glenn because because Jordan gave a copy of the book to John Glenn in which he inscribed it and said like, you're on this page. Um, so, uh, so yeah, we definitely know he was, he was in fact doing that there. Uh, and, and yeah, this was something that um, he was very serious about it. It needed to organically work. It, it, it couldn't, it couldn't be just a, a, a kind of, a kind of trick. Right. You know, like, like I scrambled the letters and this is what I came up with. He, he wanted it to kind of, to kind of work. Um, you know, obviously in some cases, like, a, you know, a trained linguist, you know, probably would be, you know, like, well, that's, that's an unlikely sound change or something. And yeah. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> is, is there <laughs> but, any, is it known whether John Gwen responded? Is that recorded in any way? You know, I don't know. I actually don't know. That's a great question. If, if John Glenn ever wrote him back. Uh, I could, I, I imagine so, but I don't, if it has been, I don't think it's ever been released, hmm. but I, maybe somebody listening will be like, no, no, it has, it's on this <laughs> obscure website, uh, that I missed and, and shame on me. <laughs> um, but, uh, but yeah, it, we, we do have, I know there are, we have pictures of the inscription, um, where you can see him, you know, saying this is, you know, this is for you. Yeah. So one thing that kind of surprised me reading the book was that I would have expected Frank Herbert's Dune to be a big influence on Wheel of Time. That's kind of when my friends and I talk about the books, that's kind of something that comes up and it just it just seems that it would have been a big influence. But you almost don't mention Dune at all 
in this book. So I guess it wasn't actually um, that much of an influence. Well, so it's hard to say. Um, I don't mention it as as much as I'm, I'm sure a lot of people would have liked. And that's not a – there's nothing nefarious behind that. Uh, the The book, I try to make the point, is this is not the totality of uh, the things that influenced him, the things that he was using, things he was responding to. Um, by no means was it was it to the totality. Um, it, it's it's like a it's like a, a you know a sampling, and it's a sampling that is, to my mind, of the highest probability. So the, you know, there's there's several things where you can point to you know connections between the Fremen and uh, of of Dune, and the Aiel of of uh, the Wheel of Time. Uh, yeah, there's absolutely these 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 major connection points there the the kind of smoking guns that i have are that well they're pulling from the same thing right you know like they're like they're going to the same stuff in in myth and history does that does that mean that jordan did not did not know of herbert right and was using well i don't know that right i don't know if if they're both looking at the same thing but but jordan is also looking at dune right that's that's possible but I don't have the the smoking gun for that, right? To say no, I know that he was using, uh, he was using Dune in this instance, or you know, th- there's many instances you could you could do this to. So um, rather than it being, you know, look here's here's Livingston's, you know, <laughs> speculations, right? I, I didn't I didn't want it to to be that. I wanted it to be as, um, uh, as confirmed as possible, if that makes sense. Yeah, but so so in all his notes, there's no references to Dune at all. There, there are there are a few uh, references to Herbert, but but nothing nothing like what there there's a there's a, a kind of group of of uh, of of folks who you know like man, this is here's all this stuff from from Dune, right or whatever. Um, and no, I can't confirm most most of that stuff. Like so, yeah. So if I can't if I can't do that, I don't want to put it in. <laughs> you know, I don't want to give a false representation um you know that i can't back up if that makes sense yeah all right well, sp- well speaking of speculation let's talk about this book the white goddess by robert graves oh man yeah so uh i mean you you basically you describe this uh, the, the premise basically is that he thought that in history it had been once been common for people for for societies to be more female dominated and to worship this moon goddess and that at some point the men had kind of taken over and started worshiping more of a sun god and kind of suppressed the worship of this moon goddess and that you could see hints of this throughout mythology. And it seems like basically if, um, if any two myths had some content based similarities or similarities in the name, he sort of jumped to the conclusion that these must have a common uh, source yeah, and and he was sort of trying to reconstruct what the sources must have been, yeah, based on just sim- similarities <laughs> that he saw or imagined he saw between these different different myths. Yeah, uh, yeah. Robert Graves. I mean, he's an interesting guy. Uh, period. Uh, the White Goddess is is a trip. Um, it's a real trip. I, you know, historically speaking, uh, I don't know anybody who takes what he's, you know buys what he's selling it. Cause it's a lot of it's like, that's totally not correct. Like, like there's so <laughs> many things wrong with that. I kind of, I kind of make the offhand comment, I think in the book that 
you know, by his logic, Santa and and, and Satan are the same, person, <laughs> right? Because because that's literally what he's doing. You know, he'll be like, well, this well, this word kind of looks like that word. Same thing. Then that's the same thing. You know, and you're like that's man, that's not how the English language works. Much less you start bringing other languages into the mix. So it's really it's kind of bonkers, but it's also like a like a captivating bonkers. Like it, it's he's so engaged in this idea and is drawing so many things together in this, uh, you know, kind of almost kind of like conspiratorial way. And, and there's something there's just something exciting about that, that, that is drawn in other people to be like, you know, dude, this might be, he might be onto something again. I think, you know, historically, no, <laughs> but you can see how artists can be drawn to it. Right. And, and for, for Jordan, you know, I don't know. He was he was buying what he was what to Graves was selling, but he was buying into uh, Graves is doing kind of what I want to do, which is show these different these connections between what look like you know different uh, you know mythologies or or time periods or whatever. You know, I'm gonna kind of show how you can kind of fit them together. Well, it's interesting that these three sources that you mentioned, the White Goddess, Lumor Darthur, and the Lord of the Rings, all kind of are all similar in, in this way that they involve stories that have been retold over and over and over and over and over and over again. And so sort of encode um, traces of, of earlier versions of the story that have been abandoned, but you can kind of reconstruct what the earlier versions might have been. You know. Yeah, that's exactly correct. That's exactly correct. Because yeah, Thomas Mallory's Mort Tarthur is doing the same thing, right? He's bringing together all of these disparate stories about King Arthur that he knows and, and trying to make them into kind of a you know a seamless whole. And and some of those were like, well, we know he was using something, but we're not really sure what he was using. Hmm. So it's kind of you know it's kind of cool that he preserved what he did, right? Um, and and so yeah, he's doing the same thing to Arthur. Uh, Tolkien is doing much the same kind of thing with looking at Northern mythologies, uh, and, and languages. And, uh, obviously Robert Graves is kind of, you know, tripping out and doing it with all kinds <laughs> of stuff, but a lot of Welsh materials. He's using a lot of Welsh materials, uh, Celtic materials. Um, but he's combining it like willy nilly with Babylonian things and stuff. And, um, and yeah, Jordan is like grabbing hold of all of that and, and then everything, you know, before or since, uh, from just about anywhere in the world, because he's just not, um, you know, he's not confined uh, in any way. He has no, he has no guardrails because, you know, the world is, world is his oyster because again, it's, um, literally everything can be a part of the wheel of time. It's, it's, it's a, it's a, an incredible sort of thing to try and do, right? Uh, and it's astonishing to, to look back and, and think that he thought he could pull this off, <laughs> you know, like in three books, he thought at one point, <laughs> you're like, <laughs> you're like, no, man, you're not going to do that. Um, well, but, but part of it, of course, is he changed, you know, changed what he was doing over time too. So, well, let me, I was curious about that. Cause you know, in this book, there's like, you know, the Semitic war God, the Shinto gods, um, like the Yoruba culture, is that stuff that you know, or like, how did you make, or is that in his notes? Like, how did you find those sort of more off the beaten path sorts of um, gods and mythologies and stuff? 
Yeah, some of it's stuff that I know. I mean, I, I, you know, I teach mythology, uh, you know, in college, and so you know, I know some of that stuff, and I've and I've long been interested in, um, you know, other religions and other cultures, and and so a lot of that is stuff that I know. Uh, some of it is stuff that um, uh, somebody else had had figured out, uh, which is cool, and I and I try to sort of like give you know credit when that happens. You know, so and so figured this one out. Um, but there's also uh, stuff that's in the notes. He was a rabid collector of names. He, he thought names were, um, this kind of creative, uh, spark and in, in his name lists, cause he just had these huge lists of names and you can see in them right where he's getting you know, where he's gotten that name from, right? You know, sometimes, I mean, sometimes he literally writes, you know, in the notes, he says, this is the name, this is what it's from. Uh, but in other cases, you know, you have, you have this name and you're like, okay, well, well, what is that? If I don't recognize it, you know, again, power of the internet, you can look on the internet pretty quickly and be like, oh, that's this Shinto God. Okay. Um, did he then use this name in the books, right? Or did he, did he change and morph it into a, into a different form? And he used that in the books. So you can, uh, you know, sort of re- reverse engineer what he's doing, or I must not really reverse engineer. You're like kind of re-engineering the process yeah. that he followed um, in order to to sort of like follow that rabbit hole and see, you know, did that did that go somewhere? Oh, boom, it did. Oh, and does that make sense? Yes, it does. Uh, but in, yeah, in other cases, he's his notes like literally say, "I got this word from that from that thing." Those are wonderful moments, obviously, where you you feel. Right. I mean, this is this is a hundred percent done deal. He literally just said in this note, "That's what I did." Uh, those notes, of course, are for himself. He didn't leave these, you know, for anyone else. But, um, but you know, in writing notes to himself, he would he would say that, which is, uh, yeah, it's like I mean, it's a gold mine for for somebody like me. Yeah, yeah, that's cool. Okay, so so let me ask you about this. So you say in the book. Tolkien threw down a gauntlet with the Lord of the Rings, challenging other writers with what and how they could create. Many yeah. wrote fantasies after Tolkien. Many of them sold extremely well. None, I think, picked up the gauntlet quite the way Jordan did. So, could you talk more about that? What do you think? What do you think that Jordan did that other post-Tolkien fantasy writers didn't do? Well, I, I think the big thing is this mechanism of creation. Uh, Jordan. Worked in much the same way that 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 Tolkien did, and uh, you know, so if we kind of step back from that, how did how did Tolkien do it? Um, you know, look, we we know the Hobbit is is written first. He writes the Hobbit because he's scribbled down on a on a blank uh, examination booklet uh, in the middle of of summer term grading. He turned a page that he was grading in a particularly bad examination, um, and. As he as he later said, it was blessedly blank, so he didn't have to grade that page. <laughs> and he wrote on it for reasons he did not know. In a hole in the ground, there lived a hobbit, and he stared at it and then thought, "What the hell is a hobbit?" And ends up writing this story, kind of trying to figure out what that is. And he, to do that, builds it out of uh, linguistics and builds it out of stories that he knows. And in in his case, you know, the Hobbit is a kind of rewriting of of Beowulf, among other things. So, so that's kind of the way that he, that he constructed his, his mythology and his stories as this, you know, I'm going to kind of find, I'm going to create something that, that could exist 
in our past that led to stuff that we know. So the same thing is what Jordan is doing, right? He's, he's trying to create a story that could lead to our stories. Um, but of course it's also built from those stories, right? It's because it's a circle, um, uh, as a, as a wheel tends to be any good wheel anyway. And, uh, so yeah, he's, he's doing the same mechanism. It's on a different scale, but he's doing the same mechanism that, that Tolkien did. And, and obviously there are many writers who have done right. A re a retelling of King Arthur. Um, but that, but that's different from what Jordan was doing, right? He wasn't just retelling the myth of Arthur. He's creating a story built of Arthur that can lead to Arthur, but is also, you know, the Norse mythology and also this and also this and also this, right? So it's just, it's the scale of this is so massive. And, and I don't know of anything that, that really can, can even approximate that. Um, in the years since Tolkien, I mean, Tolkien kind of hits this high point of that. And there's lots of people that write Tolkien-esque fiction, right? But they're not really doing what Tolkien was doing. I think somewhere that's, you can kind of sense that in the books, right? The, the depth of Lord of the Rings, uh, you can kind of feel it because it's built on this depth of, of, of literature and mythology. And you get a sense of that and you don't get a sense of that in, in a lot of the imitators. And I, I think to some degree that's the same as the, it's true of Jordan as well. He just was doing it at a, at a bigger level. Yeah, I, I mean the the sort of fantasy epics between Tolkien and Jordan that I'm most familiar with would be um, Zelazny's Chronicles of Amber and Gene Wolfe's Book of the New Sun. Mm -hmm. And uh, certainly neither of those are at the same scale as Jordan. But I would have said in there's there's sort of similar projects in some ways. I mean, like um, you know, in in Amber you have the idea that. Uh, that Amber is both sort of our myth, you know, is informing our myths and is like a myth shaped by our, shaped by us. And, you know, like a lot of the characters are, you know, Oberon and Cain and, and stuff. They have, you know, they're from our, there's like the Song of Roland and Arthurian stuff in there. And, yeah. um, with, um, Book of the New Sun, you know, the idea is that so far in the future that everything's happened many, many yeah. times. And, and and it, all the characters are drawn from mythology and stuff, or all the the names are drawn from mythology. So I was just wondering, like, I don't know how familiar you are with those, but is there anything more to say about? Oh, they're they're. I mean, they're they're great. Um, the Wolf. Oh my God, that that series. Uh, God, everything Wolf wrote is amazing. Uh, dude was dude was incredible. And but those books, I I totally fell in love with those books at a at a period in my life. Uh, just the complexity of and the complexity of his narrator. Right. When you, when you get through those books, I don't spoil it for anybody, but it's interesting <laughs> when, when you read those books and you're like, Oh my God, look what hmm. you did. So, so yeah, I mean, again, I'm, I, you know, I, like I'm not, I'm not saying look, that thing that, that you or somebody else loves is trash. Like I'm not like, that's not my position. Um, I'm just saying like, you know, nobody does this to the degree that, that Jordan did. Um, you know, are, are other writers using mythology? Yeah. Yeah, like all the time, right? Uh, I mean, you mentioned Dune earlier. Yeah, Dune's Dune's using again. There's there's commonalities between the Fremen and Ael because they're both using the same myths. They're both looking at the same material. Um, so so yeah, other writers writers do this, uh, but I I certainly don't don't see anybody doing it to the depth and complexity that 
that that Jordan did. I, I mean, I hope you know. I hope I hope somebody else you know can take up the mantle, you know, again and and do that. It's bloody difficult work, right? It's 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 one thing to um you know, to kind of build out of a singular thread of, of culture. Um, but to, to work at the level that, that, that Jordan was doing is, is pretty wild. Like it really is pretty wild that, that he could move between these different, uh, different cultures and, and different, you know, worldviews and was, and was able to grab things and splice them together. Uh, I just, I don't know. I think it's really impressive. Yeah. Well, you, you say in the book, uh, Jordan was often accused of having deliberately stretched the story out for financial gain, but there's no evidence this was so. Yeah. I was just curious, like, what, what is there in there in his notes that sort of, um, like touches on how the series got so long and expanded so far beyond his initial, uh, sort of concept? So Jordan wrote or- organically. He, um, you know, he had a, a scope of a story in mind, but as he's writing, he is um, kind of building out as as he goes, and and inevitably, right? That's 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 building outwards as opposed to like closing inwards. You know, towards an, an outline, for instance. So I think there's a, d- a degree to which that is happening. There's there's also uh, a degree to which once he gets involved in this project and starts really seeing how these characters uh, take on lives of their own, but also get influences additional to those that he had originally envisioned. Right. You know, I, I originally envisioned this character as being, you know, so-and-so from mythology, but now they're actually going to also be these other three people. So that adds, you know, more complexity to it. And when you combine those, those things together, yeah, it just, man, it just starts going, right? it just <laughs> starts going. And is it, he ever like, he just notes like, oh my God, I can't believe this is going to be 15 books. I got to like, try to keep it at nine or like, yeah, anything you, like yeah, that. Yeah. Oh, oh yeah. You can see where, where he's like, you know, oh, oh dear. Uh, <laughs> you know, this is getting, this is getting big. Um, and, and he, he had other stories he wanted to tell. Um, you know, he had, he had, he had contracts for other, other stories he wanted to tell. And, um, but he, but he also, you know, he wanted to complete this, this story and, 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 and do it right. You know, not just, well, I'm just going to wrap this thing up. Right. It, it was, no, I, this has to be done correctly. And obviously, you know, he died of course, before, uh, he could himself complete it. And and we owe a lot to uh, to Brandon Sanderson, um, you know, for taking over very much, obviously, with the the support uh, of of what's called Team Jordan, uh, Jordan's assistants, and uh, and Harriet, the, his wife and editor, uh, and and uh, and the notes and other materials that uh, that Brandon was given to try and you know like you know land the plane as it were, right, you know, and and make this right, and. Um, and, and it was, and it was difficult, right? You know, I mean, Jordan thought he, he could do it in one more book. It, yeah, it took, it took Brandon three. Uh, and again, I, that's not, that's not like, 
you know, Brandon and, and Team Jordan or whatever were like, let's stretch it out. Like, that's not what's happening. It's just so big. Like, that even with a, um, uh, with a mission of, I'm going to wrap this up, it still took three. And, and, and not everything is, uh, is, is, is wrapped up, right? I mean, there's still, you know, plenty of things that are, uh, you know, stories that, that, that could have also been, uh, you know, continued and gone on with. So, uh, yeah, lot, lot going on in that thing. I just feel like um, sort of the cynical members of the audience have this tendency to wildly overestimate how motivated a successful author would be by money. You know, it's like <laughs> by the time you get to that point, I, I just can't imagine, you know, you, you're you at the point of success of, of somebody like Robert Jordan with, you know, nine best-selling books. You're not thinking like, okay, I got to stretch this out to make more money. I mean, the money is yeah. not an yeah, issue he, at that point. He did, he did not need the money. Yeah, he did not need the money. Um, I mean, you know, I, I get that, right. I get, as you say, that kind of cynical point of view, you know, oh, they're just stretching it out, you know, or whatever. Like I get that cynicism, but also, you know, look, it's cynical, right? It's cynical and it, and it really doesn't, it's not really fixed in, uh, you know, in, in, in reality. Um, you know, they weren't, they weren't then or now trying to, uh, you know, kind of, you know, milk more dollars out of the, out of the fans. Uh, he wanted to tell a story and he wanted to do it right. And he, and he had the success that he could, he could do it, you know, the way he thought was, was best. And, uh, and yeah, I mean, it's all, it's, just, it's an awful shame that, that he didn't get to, to live to complete it himself. Not, not that, yeah, not that there's anything wrong with the way it was completed. They did a great job, but uh, obviously I think it would have been amazing, you know, for, for him, right. To, to, to finish it and feel that, that sense of, of having, finished what he started yeah yeah absolutely there's a part in the book you quote that he never published this i don't think but it's this sort of draft this long draft um um a biographical uh, you know blurb thing and it says um he is an advocate of solar power satellites the strategic defense initiative the industrialization of space the colonization of the moon mars and beyond since o'neill colonies politically he considers himself a libertarian monarchist I was just curious. Do you have like any idea what a libertarian monarchist is, and just kind of what do you make of that uh, uh, biography overall? Yeah, oh, well, it's a it's a fun uh, a fun biography, honestly. Uh, in many in many respects, he also talks about being um, a Sherlockian, um, which is which is great fun, and, and he is a um, um, uh, in, in a in addition. Uh, uh, somebody who who had some, uh, I don't know if I call them conspiracy thoughts, but uh, uh, thoughts about Richard the uh, Third that are that are that are kind of fun. But yeah, he 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 thought of himself as a as a libertarian monarchist. Um, so you know, you're looking at at. I'm, I'm I want to be kind of careful about how I how I phrase this, like. Like like nowadays, uh, how we kind of categorize things would be very different from when he wrote those words, right? So you know when he wrote those those words, he would have thought of that as being very conservative and right wing, um, you know, economically right wing, um, but but also libertarian and like uh, um, in terms of social dynamics and and, and civics. I, I think those, those terms, you know, have different, you know, meanings and different import, I think today. Um, so I don't know that he would, 
he would necessarily match with those. I, I don't want to be in the position of putting words in his mouth. So, um, yeah, libertarian monarchist is is a a bit Dude, of is a that just is a joke or I mean no no it's not a joke. This is a, this is absolutely a valid uh, uh, point of view. Um, it's 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 sometimes derided for being somewhat um, uh, you know kind of self contradictory, right? How can you be uh, libertarian and then also monarchist? Um, but there is a a philosophy of thought that um, uh, you know liber- libertarianism in its in its um, the need needs some some guardrails, right? It needs some uh, something to 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 keep organization of society. Um, so it's just not unfettered, and that monarchism um, obviously has some defaults, um, has a kind of systematized way of holding things together. That um, that obviously, if, if you if you approve of the monarch, there's a big a big uh, asterisk to that. Uh, works works well. So yeah, whether he would have categorized himself as that, you know, towards the end of his life. Certainly, whether he would have categorized himself as that today, I you know I don't know. Um, but yeah, that was early on. That was what he uh, what he put together. He had actually two different biographies that he put together. Uh, they both basically said the same thing. The most the most frustrating part of that biography to me is that he makes reference there to the fact that he ghost wrote another book, and I have no idea what it is. <laughs> and I and I if if the estate knows they're not telling me because <laughs> I've asked, I'm like, can you tell me? And it was like, change the subject. And I'm like, well, <laughs> Does that mean you don't know or you just not telling me? Uh, but yeah, he, he so it might be like a bodice ripper or something like that. Right. Yeah. I mean, like who knows what it is, right? Well, he, he says it's a, it's a thriller. Um, but I guess you could have lots of things under that, under that category. Um, so yeah, he makes reference to it, to a book and I have not been able to identify it. Uh, as far as I know, nobody has, has done so again, that like maybe somebody's listening. I'll be like, Oh no, no, no. So-and-so, you know, over in Belgium figured it out or whatever. <laughs> and, uh, and I hope, I hope so. Cause I'd, I'd love to know what it is. I've, you know, I've read all his, his published work and his unpublished novels. And I'd, I'd love to have read that one too. Yeah. You mentioned a bunch of points in the book. You say, you know, um, some, something in wheel of time is a reference to some, Charleston, uh, you know, street or, you know, a point of interest or something like that. I was just curious if you could talk about how living in Charleston uh, informs your writing of this book. Would you have come up with all that stuff, you think, if you were living in Albuquerque or did you only <laughs> find it because you were local? Uh, yeah, I, I used to live in Albuquerque. Um, God, I miss the food. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, I I don't know that I could have come up with all that. So, some of it you know, could have, because it was already known right in the fandom. People had already kind of like put two and two together and come up with four. Uh, cause some of it's kind of, you know, kind of obvious. Um, you know, Charleston is uh, situated between two rivers. Um, and the, the books are begin in a place called the two rivers. Like doesn't take a, a, a genius to put that <laughs> together. Um, and he was, and he was very much a Charlestonian, right? He, he was born here, grew up here goes to Vietnam, comes back here, right. And spends the rest of his life here. Like this, this was his world. Um, and yeah, l- you know, living here and, and, and working, you know, at the place where he, he went to school and that meant so much to him as an alma mater. Yeah. Certainly was a huge advantage, right. That, that, you know, 
when I'm reading the books and I read the name of, of an inn, I'm like, that's that pub next to his house. Like that's, you know, I know that place I've been there, you know, I had the burger. It was good. And, and so, you know, would I, would I know that if I didn't live here? Like assuredly, I can't imagine it. I can't imagine I would know it, but, but yeah, living here certainly enables that stuff. And, and, you know, the same thing with, um, you know, being able to talk with his assistants, right. And, and, you know, talk to his, to his wife, you know, to know, right. You know, or I say, you know, is this from that? Oh yeah. That's what it's from. Okay, cool. (laughs) Right. Got it. Yeah. So it looks like you've been doing a lot of, um, interviews and stuff about this book does it feel like a lot like it's getting a lot of attention or (laughs) yeah it is it's getting a lot of attention uh which is great obviously like more hey come on uh buy my book (laughs) it it, uh it, it it pleases me it's getting a lot of attention and the thing that pleases me in the attention it's getting has been the uh the response from I guess I'd call it kind of like the, the hardcore fan community. Um, you know, the, the kind of thought they sort of knew everything and then here's like stuff they didn't know. And that it's had kind of an emotional, I think, you know, in a positive way effect on people. And as a writer, that is really, really nice to know that, that you've, that you've touched somebody and, um, made this this thing that that they already loved just just a little bit you know better for them or whatever that that's that's really really exciting to me so i've been very pleased with uh with the attention it's getting and uh um i mean sales they tell me are good i don't really <laughs> i don't really track these things <laughs> but like, they tell what me what sort of things uh, do you think are are people who interview you or like listener or, um, you know, readers and stuff, most curious, like what do they ask you? Like, so that's so, really struck you that they ask you. Yeah. There's, there's kind of two big categories, right? One is, uh, you know, general media kind of interview sort of like what we're doing. Right. Um, and the other is sort of the fan based media, the fan based media. Um, we get into the questions, you know, like, like who's your favorite character? Um, you know, how did, how did my writing this book change how I view the series? You know, a lot of kind of in-world um, questions, right? Um, and which are great, which are awesome questions. And, and then, and then, you know, kind of what what you're asking me about is more like like how was the sausage made, right? <laughs> um, which is kind of a totally different way of of talking about the book. So it's actually been a lot of fun to to have both of these things, right? Because because both of those things are engagements that I have with writing the book, right? I am like, I'm a historian. I'm like that, that that's what I do. And I wrote a book using like flexing those muscles. It's also a book that happens to be about something that I grew up as a fan of. And so I'm like, I am flexing those muscles and writing it too. Right. And I'm like, Oh my God, this is this character. I love this character. Who'd they <laughs> come from? That's cool. So, so I had, I had this kind of, uh, you know, bifurcated experience in in writing the book, and now I'm and now I'm getting to sort of live that again in interviews, as people ask questions from kind of both of those perspectives, uh, which I which is just I don't know, it's fun for me. It really is. It's a delight because I enjoy I enjoy talking about this stuff. I love it. That's why I wrote a book about it. 
<laughs> um, and and uh, and the questions are always good. I mean, whichever side. Yeah, that's cool. Okay, so I have um, some questions about some of your other projects I wanted to get to, but uh, before we move on from Origins to the Wheel of Time, just is there anything else that you that we didn't get to that you want to let people know before we uh, move on to other subjects? Well, I, you know, I think one of the things I would say is that I hope, even if you're not like I read all the books and I, you know, live and breathe the Wheel of Time, uh, that nevertheless this book. That you, that you can access it, right? That that what I'm talking about is biography, how he did what he did, um, you know, his relationship to to, to Tolkien, um, and just seeing how an author developed as a as a writer and developed that project. That 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 there's there's stuff in there for you too, right? It's not going to necessarily be, you know, oh, I always wanted to know who who was behind that character, what the truth of was of that. Um, you know, hardcore fans. Obviously, that that can be really important to them. But even if you don't have that attachment, just just to see a um, an artist kind of at work, I I hope anyway uh, has has a connection point to to anybody. So so yeah, even if you're not a, a huge Jordan fan, you you might you might like the book. I don't know. Try it out. Yeah. Well, and I haven't read the whole series, and um, but uh, you know, this is a full full spoiler is this book. But I feel like. Uh, having lacking the context, like, I mean, I know that I know there's a lot of characters who, you know, betray other characters. I know there's a lot of characters who who die and come back. Uh, you know, I know there's a lot of big battles, but uh, you know, even having read this book, I feel like I could still read the rest of Wheel of Time and be pretty much surprised because uh, <laughs> the 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 details, uh, you know, there's like so much, so much it was it would be impossible to. To remember all the the granular details uh, out of context, uh, if, right. if you haven't read the books, right? Oh, that's good. That's that's certainly what I was hoping. So that's that's good to hear. I <laughs> appreciate it. Yeah. Um, all right. Cool. So you mentioned that you grew up in Albuquerque, and I'm sort of fascinated by the New Mexico science fiction scene, like Roger Zelazny and George R. R. Martin. I was just curious if you ever uh, intersected with that community in any way. I so I moved. We moved from there uh, just after I started college. So I, I wasn't, um, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't in the biz yet. Uh, obviously I intersected with their work. Um, you know, and there, and there's, I, I mean, Stephen R. Donaldson was in Albuquerque. Um, and obviously, you know, uh, George is in Santa Fe. Um, yeah, there's a lot of stuff going on in New Mexico. Uh, and it's just a, it's just a cool it's just a cool atmosphere. I, I don't, I don't know how to describe it. It's just magical. I, I really love New Mexico, and I and I do miss it. Charleston's amazing as, as well. I don't want like <laughs> Charleston haters coming after me. I love it here too, but um, but yeah, I have a, I have a lot of fond memories of of New Mexico. All right, cool. Yeah, if I've been there a couple of times, you know, I went and uh, hung out with Melinda Snodgrass and nice, uh, you know, stopped in Roswell and stuff like that. Which I guess. Um, Brings me to my next uh, thing I wanted to ask you about is you were on a TV show, uh, Contact. <laughs> you want to tell us yeah. about that? Yeah, I was. I was on a on a TV show uh, to uh, to talk about UFOs, um, which is just bizarre to me. So that was on Discovery Channel 2019. Uh, it was pitched to me as as uh, MythBusters for UFOs, and 
they they knew of my work the, the producers knew of my work in in uh you know military history right that you know i I, rec- I find and reconstruct battles and and events and so you know the necessary work of that is i have a data set and it's a data set that right generations of scholars have looked at this data set and they're like that's all the data there is and i kind of come along and you know, sort of look at it sideways or whatever. I'm like, no, no, there's actually more data we can extract here that can help answer the question of what happened and where it happened and all that good, good stuff. And so they're like, well, you could just, you know, use the same kind of skill set you've got, right? Just kind of flex this muscle. Um, but like, instead of a medieval battle, you know, it's, it's Roswell. And, uh, I was like, that yeah, sounds cool. Like, sounds great. And, uh, uh, that's not quite what <laughs> made it onto the screen. I will say, um, it um, there wasn't a lot of busting going on. Yeah, that's it's the like thing. Mythbusters right? without the busting, right? Mythbusters without the, uh, the busting, uh, which which still saddens me. It it really, you know, it's a it's a it's a bummer because I think there's a place for that. I mean, I, you know, obviously they're in charge of what goes on TV, and they didn't agree, but I think there's a place for that. Uh, you know, I think back to, there's a few scenes there that I, I watch, well, not like I watch it that often, but that I, <laughs> that I remember. And I think, God, you know, how different that is. You know, there's one where, where I'm, uh, sort of up at the the big screen, we called it, which is, is in this command room and, and, uh, looking at this Chilean military footage from a Chilean naval helicopter. It's infrared footage. And you can see there's these two hot, um, kind of circular sort of objects kind of next to each other, almost like a dumbbell. And then it looks like it sprays out some like super hot liquid. And they had all these, all these uh, experts are like, you know, this can't be of this world. Nothing's like this, whatever. And, and, you know, I'm watching the footage and, and I turned around and Chris, all these cameras running. Right. And I say, I say, this is incredible. Or this is amazing. <laughs> something like that. I say something like that. That's where, and then the edits, that's where they cut me off. <laughs> it's, it's cut. What I said on set was like, this is, this is incredible. We're looking at, um, uh, a view of a commercial airliner seen from behind at approximately 20 miles. Uh, in fact, look at the time date stamp, pull up flight tracker. I'll tell you how many souls are on that plane. And so they, yeah, they cut all that. So instead it's just me going like, oh my God, what is it? <laughs> and, uh, and then we just kind of move on. Um, yeah, which it, yeah, it bummed me out that that's what they did. But, I, th- I thought you were um, going to say, uh, you know, what I said was this is incredible bullshit. And then they just cut out the- <laughs> there were a few <laughs> things where, yeah, I was like, what on earth? Uh, this is obvious what this thing is. And, and, uh. Yeah, you know, mystery, I guess mystery sells better than answers do, I guess. I don't know. I, I'm not in, I'm not in those meetings. Um, they, they took the footage and, and uh, they, they, they did what they did and, uh, we didn't get a second season. <laughs> it just, it just seems like there's, there's so many headlines I see where it's like, no, seriously, aliens have been proven to be real now for, for, for sure, you know. And I don't even look at them anymore, but it's, it just, it never ceases to amaze me how, how many headlines like that. Um, yeah. And, and what, see, I thought was, what I thought was interesting in, in that project was, you know, we've, you know, we've got some, some really intelligent people involved and, um, you know, to go through cases and be like, yeah, that's this thing. So 
let's close that one. What's next? And then you would get to some cases where it's like, yeah, I can't explain that. Right. You know, I've, I have put everything I know into it, you know, flip, flipped the data set every which way I can. And, and it's, and it's beyond, you know, and, and of course not just me, right. We have other people involved too. You know, look, we, we don't have an answer on that one. I mean, does that mean it's, you know, from another planet, like odds are it's not, but it does mean like, how about we stop wasting our time talking about X, Y, and Z or X, Y, and Z for anybody in in Canada <laughs> uh, or the UK. Um, you know, let's stop, let's stop talking about those. We, we basically know what those are. Uh, these are more interesting because we, you know, we don't know what they are. Um, I thought there's kind of like a utility in that. And, uh, but yeah, I'm, uh, I'm well, not, I'm not in charge of that. <laughs> well, oh, well. I, you know, I was talking to Mike Cole, who was on the show with you and he was telling me that he said the only thing that you that you found that was sort of semi hard to explain was some sort of hydrophobic soil or something like that. Yeah. There was this really weird, um, weird case. It was in, uh, uh, Kansas of, I believe I remember correctly, um, where there'd been a UFO sighting and it had, and it was, I mean, decades and decades ago and, and, and it was geolocatable, right? It was like it, it had landed like in this spot, supposedly. And when they did soil samples of the of the actual soil, like dug down um, to where you know through through the topsoil to you know to basically get back to the soil that would have been there then, um, and we're testing the soil samples as they went. They did get to a spot where the, the soil was suddenly like behaving in very strange ways. And in, and in particular it was, it was hydrophobic, which, which dirt kind of normally is not hydrophobic. Um, usually soaks up water instead of kicking it away. And at least the, the soil experts that they had were like, that's like, we don't really got an explanation for this. We don't know what the hell's going on. Um, but we, but we weren't able to really pursue that much further, uh, which, which again, like it would have been far more interesting to me to to go down kind of that rabbit hole as opposed to jumping to sort of a different one. Um, and that one, and that one's strange too because the sighting itself, um, the reports we have are um, are are really they they got some real serious problems with them. So if it's not without the soil it's a, a really easy one to, to kick out yet the, the soil kind of, you know, begs for explanation on its own. So yeah, it's uh yeah, it was, that was an interesting one. There were, I mean, there's, there's elements of that we came across that were, that's, that's really cool. I wish we could, you know, <laughs> get, get into that more, but. I mean, my, my thing with like UFO sightings is always, I don't understand just from a science fiction perspective, I don't understand what the motivation would be for aliens to come and just kind of, cruise around in the upper atmosphere <laughs> decade after decade, never talking to anyone or doing anything of any consequence. Like what is yeah. the return on investment of this? Activity? Well, exactly. When it's been, of course, when you think about, you know, if you're technologically at the point where, where you can achieve, you know, faster than light travel or, or whatever is necessary to come from, you know, wherever you are, um, you know, thinking back to, you know, the, the, the basic scaling of you know, interstellar travel. Um, yeah, what are you doing? What are you doing? Just, just pop in. Hey, we we spooked those people on on Interstate ninety. Like, <laughs> go home now. Uh, it's just 
it's very, very strange. Uh, but, but rarely, you know, rarely talked about. And, and part of that is, you know, look, people, uh, you know, people want to believe in, uh, you know, to go back to the X-Files, I want to believe, um, you know, in something, uh, extraordinary and, uh, UFOs are, are something literally extraordinary and, uh, fills that, fills that need. Yeah. And I feel like, you know, we have spy satellites, you know, and so if aliens wanted to gather information about earth, they could do it if they have interstellar technology, presumably they, and, and they didn't want to be noticed, presumably they could gather all the information they needed, needed without entering the atmosphere, you know? Yeah. It, you, you, UFOs got a lot to answer for. If you're going <laughs> to take it, uh, uh, take it too far. Um, but yeah, again, we, um, yeah, that particular, that particular show, you know, we did, we did what we, uh, what we were asked to do. Um, it was, it was a trip. <laughs> I'll say that it was yeah. a trip. Okay. So I also wanted to give you a chance to talk about your career as a fiction writer. So, um, you want to just talk about some of your fantasy series that you've written? Yeah. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Um, I've written two trilogies. Uh, one is the shards of heaven trilogy. Um, and that is, that was the first one I wrote published by tour books. Uh, that is essentially a story about the, the children of Caesar and, and Cleopatra and Mark Antony and taking kind of our known facts of history and interweaving them with a kind of supernatural story, right? Uh, you know, what would happen if the, the Trident Poseidon was real? Um, and, and is actually functioning in history, but, but without breaking history, if you know what I mean, not breaking any facts. So, uh, kind of a story behind the story of, of, of history that's el- elements of fantasy. Uh, I, I had a blast writing that it, um, yeah, I'm still really proud of those books. They're, they're cool. And then I got an epic fantasy, like straight up kind of fantasy, um, that is something I wrote audible. Uh, signed as exclusive, uh, initially exclusive books, um, as audio books, which is the Seaborn cycle. So the first book there is Seaborn. And, uh, that's a, I mean, it's a, a matriarchal world of, of, of pirates and, uh, and, and these amazing women who, uh, come into contact with another culture that has, uh, much more advanced technologies, airships. And uh, all in a world that is being, uh, they're having a fight against large metal men. So it's a lot going on and written, written for audio. And the third book I is coming out in the spring. I finished it this summer and I think they're recording it now. Uh, really, really great audio, uh, performance, like a really good audio performance. Um, which is which is amazing as a writer, right? You write these words to be read out loud, and uh, then to hear like an artist, you know, grab hold those words right and make those characters real. Really, really cool um, to to listen to. So, so yeah, the shards of heaven first book, shards of heaven, and then the seaborn cycle, which first book is seaborn, and uh, and yeah, the third one of those is coming out. And other than that, I do I do history, so I got lots of. Uh, popular and then unpopular uh, <laughs> academic <laughs> books 
But uh, the popular ones are probably the ones that would be most likely for this audience. The last of those was the Battle of Crecy, Crecy Battle of Five Kings that came out uh, in July, I want to say, and uh, very much written for the widest audience possible. Mm -hmm. I saw that you and Mike have a book coming out, The Killing Ground. Yeah. So Mike does uh, ancient history on the, on the side. And we had done several articles um, going back to, to contact days um, on ancient, ancient history on reconstructing some battles. And he'd come up with this idea of, uh, you know, look, Thermopylae is, you know, one of the most famous battles in the world, right? You know, the, you know, movie 300, Leonidas, the Spartans, all that jazz. And uh, that's not not even the first battle that happens in that pass. There are battles that occur in the pass of Thermopylae all the way up to, in fact, like a Nazi tank battle happens in the pass of Thermopylae. And, uh, and he thought, he said, you know, you, you know, between the two of us, because you know, I again I do a lot of like landscape reconstruction and, and trying to you know, reconstruct battles of the past. What if we what if we did a book looking at the past of Thermopylae? Why were all these battles fought here? You know how were they fought? And, and in a sense, like because we're we're going from like the fifth century BC to the twentieth century AD, uh, it's almost like a, a history of warfare. But it's all in the same place, right? So you can see how, you know, the advent of modern artillery has changed things versus, uh, you know, what it was 200 years before, that kind of thing. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to that one because it's, it's, uh, it's such a wild story and, and elements of it are going to be a little bit eye opening. The, the Battle of Thermopylae, when it came to reconstructing it, uh, you know, he and I spent a week in, uh, on the mountain uh, and on the field, hiking around, you know, <laughs> using using my drone, using all my satellite stuff, all my lidar, all the stuff that I use, and uh, and the the story that we tell of the Battle of Thermopylae is not the story everybody knows. Um, you know what Leonidas was up to is not what you think he was up to. So it's uh, it's going to be interesting when it comes out. I'm I'm imagining I might get some some uh, people upset, but um, that's I mean that's not the point. Uh, it, uh upset it, why why are people going to get upset i you know i think thermopylae in particular and and sparta leonidas you know there's a mythology about them right um it, you, you know all, all the way to people you know molan labe you know the second amendment uh you know rights people come and take it you know in greek that's what leonidas said when the persians asked him to lay down his arms come and take it molan labe and People on the right have have taken that you know expression and you know this is our you know come and take our guns kind of thing, um, which I'm always perplexed by, right? You know that Leonidas said that and then Xerxes did. <laughs> I don't really know that that's your 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 like thing to rally around. Uh, they 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 had their weapons taken. Uh, Leonidas's head was put on a pike after he said that. I'm not sure what you want there. Um, but because it has this, this mytho mythological aspect at this point coming along and saying, you know, that, that this person you've held up as a hero, I, I'm not saying like, sir, wasn't a hero, but right. But 
but you've misunderstood what he was doing, right? Or, or the, the story isn't what you thought, you know, that's, that's a, that upsets people in, in ways that I, I, I didn't used to know. So I don't know. I'm just, I'm just expecting there's going to be some people mad. I don't know. Yeah. We'll see. So, Ho- so when you not. travel to Thermopylae, does it look pretty much like it does in 300 or could you God, just watch it? Not at all, man. Than- not at all. It's, um, yeah, that, that, that area is a strange one geographically and, in, and in fact has undergone huge changes to the landscape as a result. So like where the coastline was in Leonidas's day, when you, when you go there, uh, like you can't hardly see the water. Like it's, it's kilometers different where the coastline is, you know, the ground that he was fighting upon is way beneath your feet. You know, this isn't just like, a meter down, you know, which is usually where we like the middle ages are about a, a meter down ancient world, a couple meters, right? This is like, you know, a dozen or more meters down because mm-hmm. of the weird geography of that place. And that weird geography is part of the reason why it was this place of battle for so long, because that geography made it a, a kind of choke point. And uh, so, yeah, it's radically different today. So you have to get through, pretty uh pretty sizable amount of work uh to try and reconstruct that as 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 best we can in order to understand what happened and and that's one of the ways that having done that now it's like oh wow this is really misunderstood in part because you know the, the landscape is not what what was imagined right it's very very different and and that realization informs what happened here yeah. All right. So we're pretty much out of time. I, I don't know if this, I had one more question I wanted to ask. I don't know if this lends itself to a quick answer or not, but I'll, I'll try, David. In, in, uh, uh, in one of the footnotes, I think you say, uh, Tolkien might not be telling the whole truth about his accidental, accidental invention of the word hobbit. So what is the, the dark <laughs> secret behind? Uh, so I, I published an article, uh, some years ago uh, in which I pointed out that, um, there are, there are strands of information that he was probably, I can't say for sure, because though I've been in the Tolkien archive, I did not find a smoking gun, which I hoped to have found. Um, I didn't find the smoking gun that said that he knew of these other materials from which Hobbit could be built, but I'm pretty sure he did. Like there's every bit of circumstantial evidence. He did know the word, the word Hobbit did not appear on that page. Um, out of nowhere, he he did bring it from somewhere, and he actually, um, he says in a letter at one point, he says, "As for where I got the, I'm paraphrasing, but as for where I got the word Hobbit, um, I'll leave I'll leave it to uh, basically to future students. I don't want to deprive them of the fun." <laughs> and it was like, and it's just like he kind of like threw this gauntlet, and everybody just like ignored it. I'm like, no, it's, he kind of just said that he was up to something. How about we try and track it down? So yeah, I tracked it down, published it. It's in the, uh, myth lore. It's in the journal myth lore. Um, and I think the, the article is called the myth, the myths of the author is what it's called. If I remember correctly, the myths of the author. And I, and I go through what he said, how he got it. And then all the evidence that there is that he got it from somewhere else. And, and how he was, I don't want to say like covering it up, like not, 
not in a, <laughs> not in like a, an ulterior way or whatever, but in a kind of, you know, kind of winking, you know, sort of way. See if you can figure it out, kids. And, yeah, you know uh, what? Don't know if I figured it out or not, but I think I did. I, I, I it was a long time ago. I read it, but you know, I read, I read um Tom Shippey's book, Tolkien, author of the century, and I think maybe I read one of his other books. But from what I recall, he said something about he thought it was related to the word rabbit somehow, or there was some connection there. I don't uh, know. If I remember correctly, Shippey in uh, Road to Middle Earth, and then probably he repeats it in Author of the Century, um, references the uh, whole bitla um, and making a, a construction out of Old English. And, you know, the way that, that Tolkien worked, it was, again, this is kind of like Jordan. It's never quite just one thing, right? He's, he's, he's splicing things together. And so, yeah, he's, he's, he's playing with, um, with old English and he's playing with, you know, the, the semantics, uh, phonology, I should say, of, of the, the sounds in the word rabbit. Um, but, but there's, yeah, there's, there's, there's more stuff. I, uh, in the article, I kind of go through all the different, uh, pieces of what's going on there. Um, and, and, and including some of the jokes that, uh, you know, that if I'm, that if I'm correct are in there, Tolkien loved making these linguistic jokes that, um, only, only those who kind of saw behind the linguistic constructions would get like the, the fact that it's, it's Theoden King, right? That's the, you know, the head of Rohan, Theoden King, Theoden means King. So his name is King <laughs> King, right? Or, or Bree Hill. Bree is, Bree is the word Hill in Welsh. That's Hill Hill, right? Like he, and he knew that and he thought that was hilarious, right? He <laughs> just thought that was a riot that most people couldn't see that, but he could see it. And, uh, the same is the same, I think is, is true of Hobbit and, and Bilbo Baggins and, uh, a number of other things. So, yeah, yeah. So yeah, I, I made a, I made a winking note at that myself there in, uh, in my book. <laughs> All right, cool. No, I'll, I'll have to go check out that article. That sounds, uh, sounds cool. Yeah. But yeah, but we are, we are all out of time. So do you have any, just any other final thoughts or other projects you wanted to mention or anything I, I, like that? I appreciate, I appreciate you having me on. This is, this has been great. Uh, yeah. I mean, the, the, the book right now is Origins of the Wheel of Time. The, the other history book that came out was Crazy and the next one's on Agincourt. So I'm staying busy. <laughs> all right. So we've been speaking with Michael Livingston about his new book, Origins of the Wheel of Time. So Michael, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. And that was our interview. So big thanks again to Michael Livingston for joining us on the show. This episode of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy was made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please support us on Patreon over at patreon.com geeks or via PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com crowdfunding. All right, so that was our show. So thanks everyone for listening and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.